Welcome to Fast Fiction. The Grot Spot. I ran away from home just two weeks after my 50th birthday. No, I did not join the circus or elope with a gigolo. I did not even indulge in my long-time schoolgirl fantasy to become an erotic dancer in an exotic nightclub. I ran away to Brisbane to become a writer. True, I didn't exactly run away, and Brisbane was not much more than a hundred kilometres away from my hometown, but the statement had been made. After thirty years of being wife, mother, and part-time everything, I was finally going to be a free spirit and follow my dream to become a full-time writer. I hadn't quite decided what to write, but thought that making time for it may well be a good start. I shared my vision of the great escape with husband John, and albeit reluctantly, he set off with me one Saturday morning to traverse the highways and byways of Brisbane's fair city, looking for a cheap domicile to suit an easily placated mature societal dropout. And here we differed markedly. John kept looking in nice streets and nice suburbs, surrounded undoubtedly by nice people. But as I explained to him, I'd had it up to the proverbial what's-its with nice. I wanted spice and adventure, to be in the fast lane, on the edge, in the inn. Oh, hell, how did I know exactly what to look for? I was a middle-aged housewife having or averting a midlife crisis. And that's when we found the grot spot. It was so named because although situated on the corner of two very respectable outer city streets, this two-story building was immediately recognised by the array of 26 garbage bins in its front yard. Being heritage-listed inside, it fares a little better. Apparently some unknown architect, long since dead and forgotten, designed the building back in the 30s as new vogue living accommodation. The front door opens into a long, dark corridor flanked either side by individual one-bedroom flats, numbered alphabetically from A to L. The remaining 13 units are accessed via a wide and somewhat imposing stairway to be found halfway along the hall. However, the front door was constantly locked to avoid the local down and outs wandering in and dozing in the corridor, or worse, using the retreat as a public urinal. Access was now via the side door, which graced the plethora of garbage bins. Once these had been circumnavigated, residents could enter the building after inserting a front door key, a safety key, a deadlock key, and finally a pin code. I swear entry into Fort Knox would have been easier. However, once inside one's own front door, the flats, although identical, could be considered charming. All have main walnut wall panels topped by a shelf frieze to hold attractive knickknacks or junk, depending on the preference of the tenant. And depending on their tendencies towards vandalism, a beautiful or broken lead plate glass partition could be drawn between the lounge and bedroom. Situated as it was on the very edge of the notorious Fortitude Valley, it is not too surprising that the corner was also a well-favoured meeting place for pimps, prostitutes and other clients. So all in all, it was safe to say the area was certainly not nice. In fact, just what I wanted. 
Having paid up six months' advance rent on the Saturday, I was keen to move in, which I did the next day. According to its description of being furnished, Unit L possessed a reasonably respectable bed, wardrobe, two lounge chairs and kitchen basics. Being a product of the golden age of suburbia, I also brought in my antiquated but reliable singer sewing machine and, for the expenditure of a few dollars and creative hours, quickly provided an array of colourful cushions and drapes. This was augmented by cheap but bright floor rugs, fresh flowers in a pretty vase and an entire container of air freshener. By Sunday evening, I was installed alone in my little writer's retreat and was as happy as a pig in poo. The next day, I met up with Ginny, and my adult education began. Before her drug habit had taken hold, Ginny had enjoyed the ups of life as a university lecturer, but in the latter years, she had suffered a broken relationship, and obviously had not been mentally or emotionally equipped for the downs. In fact, I gather her downhill ride was quite spectacular. She had undergone myriad counselling sessions where under the strict supervision of highly qualified psychiatrists, she now realised that she had possibly, though not probably, suffered traumatic stress as a child at the hands of her father, two brothers and a few uncles. All had performed virtual mental rape on her. In layman's terms, this meant that almost the entire males of her family had fancied her, which, according to her shrinks, was why she had ultimately succumbed to drugs when her romance had failed. As a happily married woman, I was fascinated, mystified, horrified, and, quite frankly, sceptical. Ginny's somersault relationships with men had not precluded her having a liaison with a heavily tattooed taxi driver called Shamos, which, happily or otherwise, depending on your point of view, had resulted in a dear little two-year-old daughter called Naomi. My nesting instinct obviously surfaced rather quickly, for it was immediately agreed that I would babysit Naomi that evening so that Ginny could find more gainful employment than her present occupation. Her professional upward mobility was to be by way of an audition for the Red Garter Strip Club, which was the rental of her rather emaciated body. I had never thought those twenty years before, when learning sewing at the adult education classes run by the Country Women's Association, that my skills would ever extend to making costumes for strippers. But life does have some strange twists and turns, and within hours I was finding a whole new meaning for lycra and velcro. While tethered to my task, Ginny gave me a potted history of the other residents of number 329. The first point of interest was, of course, the landlord, who I had already met. He was a big, rough-looking man who also acted as handyman. In this status, he worked and lived in the same pair of overalls and was constantly found eating pickle sandwiches, which left a not unpleasant, though stringent and aromatic aroma. He was surprisingly well-liked, although known to be hard-hitting for the rent, which was strictly cash on the nail or you were out. Across the hall, we had a defrocked Jesuit priest. He was short, stocky and dark, who shuffled in and out of the building with eyes averted to the floor. Apparently, he was still overridden by guilt for the lack of control he had exercised on at least two occasions many years before. 
His penance was given to regular self-given flagellations, administered every Tuesday and Thursday evenings after his son and daughter's visit. Down the hall, opposite me, was an elderly gentleman called Jimmy, who was slightly deaf. He was visited daily by his equally slightly deaf daughter. He was a nice old man, but either through lack of finance or a phobia, refused to run any electricity in the flat. He had a small kerosene lamp, which he lit at night, but far more scary, his nighttime lighting needs were provided by candle power. Oh, and perhaps I should also add, he was also slightly visually impaired. Yes, connect the dots. A rather weird and strangely dressed person, who I first thought could be attributed to either gender, turned out to be a once famous rock star. He was now no more than a shriveled grey ghost of his former self, whoever that was, which I think, because of the drink, he too had forgotten. Shane, Dwayne or Wayne, he didn't seem to know which, rarely had any comprehensible conversations with real people, but was forever seeing a bloke or a mate who was going to give him his second, third or fourth big break and come back. By contrast, the Viennese musician was quiet and gentlemanly, although word had it he was hiding out in order to avoid a lawsuit for breaking a contract for performances on the world stage. Almost perfectly cloned to stereotypical expectations, this dapper little man would raise his shapeless old hat, click his horn at heel shoes, and nod his head in acknowledgement of good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. His little Hercule Poirot moustache was grey and often covered in the remnants of ice cream, which he obviously loved. And then, of course, there were the girls, who came and went according to their profession, as did their clients. Some of these I thought I recognised from political billboards soliciting me to vote for them in local elections. I had no moral qualms about these commercial ventures and, in fact, enjoyed the constant Oh, oh! don't tell me, isn't that what's-his-name from the thingy-bob uh, independent party? While the entire building was well-built and sound-proofed, after the first night I discovered the room above was not. Unfortunately, the constant squeaky springs of the bed were rather obtrusive in the middle of the night and allowed my imagination to run riot, especially when I discovered that two healthy and rather virile males cohabited above. I'll say no more. On Wednesday morning, I was first irritated, then bewildered, when woken up by a loud, aggressive knocking on the door. With a certain amount of trepidation, I answered it. A huge young man stood barefoot, clad in singlet and shorts. His hair was unkempt, and he had at least two days' growth of beard. A strange, guttural convocation of sounds came forth as he acknowledged me. Jenny says you, you've got one of those lives. Here he hesitated, searching for the right word. I could not help him. He went on, one of those, one of those things, the clean things. A duster, I tried. He shook his head. Nah. He motioned as if sweeping. A broom, I offered. His eyes lit up. Yeah, yeah. I went to the closet and retrieved my brand new shiny red-handled broom, bought especially for my new home. His face fell. Nah. He shook his head again. Nah. Now one of those things you, you, you know, you, you, you plug them in. There was more motioning. 
a vacuum cleaner. His face held no clue of right or wrong, so I went back to the closet and took out my second-hand vacuum cleaner, bought only the day before from St. Vinnie's, for five dollars. His face creased in concentration. Then his hand went out to grasp it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Without asking for borrowing rights, he grabbed it and with surprising speed for his bulk and manner, disappeared up the hall. Me, David, was not going to argue with him, Goliath, so I let it be and shut the door, wondering at the same time if St. Vinnie's had another such bargain. Surprisingly, I did not need to find out, for when I came back from shopping that afternoon, my vacuum cleaner was propped up beside the door. However, repossession was not to last for long, as an hour or so later a repetition of loud and meaningful door-knocking occurred, and another Neanderthal stood there seeking the same item. After many fulfilments of other requests for household items, I became resigned to the fact that as new girl on the block, I would be known by the very domestic nomenclature as the woman with the cleaning thingies. By Thursday, I was settled into my new bohemian life. True, little writing was being done, but I had been very busy. I had made at least three costumes that came off of Jimmy with no more than the slightest pull, begun Naomi's potty training, and even sewn on a few shirt buttons, thus extending my name tag to the woman with the cleaning and sewing thingies. I had not had opportunity to venture forth into the neighbourhood too much and looked forward to the weekend when I would be able to potter around the market and savour the atmosphere. On Friday morning, as agreed with my spouse, I rang home. This was before the days of mobile phones and I made use of the very convenient public telephone right outside the front door. The traffic noise was horrendous, but I was able to concur to husband John that nothing nasty had happened to me. I was about to ring off when I was told to hold on for a surprise. And indeed it was. My 23-year-old son, Nathan, had arrived home unexpectedly from overseas the night before. Hi, Mum. How are things? Dad says you're freaking out in a pad in Brizzy. That sounds great. He had been living in England with his grandparents for a couple of years. A few months before, he had decided to make his fortune if not fame, by returning to Oz via Hong Kong, where he would work in hospitality during the 1997 changeover. We had been told constantly and authoritatively by pundits that there would be lots of money to be made during that time. Well, the vagaries of life had not quite panned out in that direction, and in fact, on arrival in Hong Kong, he had discovered not only that all the temporary hospitality jobs had already been taken, but the prices of everything else was so high, he was forced out of the city within 48 hours or so. He had arrived home a few nights before with only 64 cents in his pocket. He really had me shit scared for a while too, Mum, because when I arrived back, I found the doors locked. I had to hang out with Glenn in his motor van. Yes, while in Brizzy helping me shift into my new pad, his father had the temerity to have locked the family home against intruders. While ruminating on such an obvious oversight on his part, I heard my son speak again. A large bus was rumbling by, but I still heard him say, Can't wait to see it, Mum. Dad says it's a real sleazy place, so I'll come down tomorrow and check it out. It sounds groovy. My heart sank. I didn't want my son in my groovy pad in my Sleesville. It was mine. Mine. No, I'll come.
come back home, I said quickly, but he was gone. Being a true mum, I got over it and the next morning felt quite delighted at the forthcoming reunion. I knew his long-term plan was to continue on to New Zealand, so he would soon be off again. I decided to not only shop for the fatted calf, but extend my bonne to a homecoming present. The Valley Saturday markets could well follow the cliché, never has so much rubbish been sold to so many people for such exorbitant prices. Even so, within an hour of intense bargaining, I was lugging a well-wrapped parcel under my arm, weaving clumsily in and out of the stores with a constant, Sorry! <gasps> Whoops! Oh, oh! Sorry, my fault! to the browsers. It was a warm spring day and miniskirts seemed shorter this year. Heels were definitely higher and hair colours, well, not only brighter, but every hue other than natural. Or was I just older? I heaved my purchase into a more comfortable position and, as best I could, looked at my watch. Slightly more than an hour to get home and get the special celebratory luncheon prepared. The king-sized prawns had been an unexpected expense, as indeed had the present, but then it was a special day. Making my way out of the throng in the mall down Brunswick Street towards New Farm, I found the picture to be big and bulky rather than heavy. In fact, so big, I would have to think carefully where it would go. I tried to focus against the pain in my arm. Well, of course, it would have to go in Nathan's old room back home, and seeing as it was his, he would have to make the decision of where exactly for himself. That looks heavy. A thick nasal voice shook me out of my reverie. Here, I'll carry it for you. We were both standing at an intersection, waiting on the lights. He was a youth of about twenty, big and fleshy, dressed in punk gear with the usual heavy artillery hanging from every available orifice and now glinting in the sun. Even as he had spoken, he had grabbed the picture from me, although it didn't look so big under his arm. My God, I'm being robbed in broad daylight, I thought, looking around to gauge any reactions from the passers-by. There was none. By now we were crossing the road together, or rather he was crossing and I was following. Not following him so much as following my picture. It really had cost a lot of money, and anyway it had been the only one in the shop. What's in the parcel, anyway? the youth asked, agreeably slowing down, and now falling in step with my gait. Um, it's a picture of Yoda from Star Wars, I mumbled, made up from lots of little photos from the movie. Oh, yeah? Who's it for? My son, I said. My son Nathan, I added. Then, furthering the discourse between us, for no particular reason, I added, his ears stuck out as a small kid, and his friends nicknamed him Yoda. But he was all right with it, and the name stuck. So is it his birthday, then? By now, we were another block up, waiting for traffic at another intersection. No, it's a leaving present, I said. He's coming home for a few days before leaving for the States for a year. Pretty big present to take with him, my companion said, holding it out at arm's length. Yes, but it's a little family joke. I've inscribed it, the leaving present you leave behind. There was no reaction to my little joke. The idea is that it will be on his wall waiting for him when he gets back. Just then we began to pass Dooley's, and I had to move right towards the road in order to avoid the jostling drinkers who were enthusiastically lapping up the sun as well as their schooners. And then I told the effing bitch 
to stop being a bloody wind and take her arsehole of a kid with her, one was saying to another as he wobbled precariously against the step. That's right, mate. Let her know who the, who the effing boss is, agreed his mate affably. The young man beside me swung around and in a feat of incredible agility grabbed the first drinker by the shirt front. Hey, you mind your effing language. There's an effing lady here. Both drunks looked surprised and then mumbled generously in what may well have been an apology. Sorry, miss. I'm bloody pissed. I didn't see you, the first one said to me as his shirt front was released. Yeah, he's got a mouth like an effing sieve, agreed the other, nodding profusely. I acknowledged their apology graciously and with the dignity of the Queen of England moved on. We walked in silence for a while. My lanky companion looked at me wistfully. You sound like a nice mum, there was a hint of a sigh. I've never had a present, not even on me birthday, there came a snort. My mum would never think of anything like that, drunk or sober. By now we were at the final intersection before I needed to turn off. Moment of truth time. I turn off here, I said, my hands going tentatively towards my gift. Would he give it to me, I wondered, and what would I do if he didn't? He stopped, still clutching the parcel. My name's Shane, he said. You tell your son he's lucky. Somberly, he handed over the picture. And not just because he's getting a present, neither, he added. He's lucky to have a mum like you. The picture was bulky to carry the last few metres up the side road, but I didn't feel the weight. I was basking in the warmth of Shane's compliment. A young boy, heavy in body piercing, who had never had a present but thought I was a nice mum. That evening, Nathan and his dad arrived. He had grown even taller than the six foot three of two years before and looked very fit. Even so, I was a little less impressed with his enthusiastic response to the flat than I might have been. Hey, mum, this is cool. Great position, close to the city, airport, everything. I nodded and could only feel a hint of depression when I saw the amount of luggage that followed him in from the car. We brought the spare mattresses, said husband John with a meaningful look as he bundled them in. Needless to say, the sleeping arrangements were a little cramped that night compared to my indulgence of singular living all week. There was certainly room to put the two slim foam mattresses on top of each other on the lounge floor, and I knew from experience they were quite comfortable. I've been on a lot worse, Mum, said Nate, reading my mind. I can sleep on anything. I knew this to be true, and it certainly was that night, as he never stirred when both of us oldies needed to get up for the inevitable bathroom visit. In the middle of the night, even though we tripped over his feet on the way past and sent one of his heavy climbing boots for six on the way back, However, it was at breakfast the next morning that my expectations for a quick visit really took a downward leap. You don't mind if I borrow the car this morning, Dad? No, but where are you thinking of going? Oh, just out to the airport to pick up. Philip. Philip. had been Nathan's workmate in London and his companion on much of his travelling. He was a nice young lad and I thought it would be nice to invite him back for an evening meal. It would be a bit tight in the kitchen department as we were already extending the utilities by one extra set of everything. However, I decided we could make do after the purchase of a few plastic extras. How wrong could I be? Nathan's next remark was the curveball. I rang him this morning and said we could give him a place to stay. He must have seen the hesitation on my face for he immediately added, 
It's the least I could do, seeing that I stayed with his folks during the holidays over in England. Of course we could provide overnight accommodation. It was the least we could do. So that evening saw the two slim foam mattresses being separated, and now the floor of the small lounge area was covered by two single mattresses and Phillips rather extensive luggage. Any misgivings I may have had were dissipated later that afternoon when our little band of four wandered up the valley mall for one of Fat Boy's famous all-day four-dollar breakfasts. My usually taciturn son took on a new persona as he sat munching sausages and eggs while swapping stories of their travels. They told of the shock of the beggars in New Delhi, which had caused them to cut short their anticipated six-week stay to a mere 48 hours. The day they parted in Barcelona, with a view of meeting up again four days later, and Nathan's consternation when on the train he discovered Philip had his wallet and passport in his backpack. What on earth did you do? I asked my gargantuan son as he demolished the last of the three rounds of toast. Did you have any money at all? Mm, about the equivalent of a dollar, he said cheerily. Yeah, it was tough. I had to stay on the train, which kept going in circles. At least I had somewhere to sleep. As for food, well, I found out that you can eat quite well from leftover garbage in the train stations. Too much information, I said, as I pushed my plate away, not sure if I was being teased or not. Then looking at Philip, I asked, So how long are you thinking of staying in Brisbane? Phillips looked around him and grinned. Well, Mrs. C., with the weather this great, and the jobs available, and the location of the unit, I reckoned I wouldn't mind staying for a couple of months. Nate and I arrived here broke after the fiasco of Hong Kong, so we both need to work up a bit of a bankroll. I contemplated this as I sipped my coffee, thinking how all my lovely plans were dissipating so quickly. Then he followed it up with the bombshell. Of course, it depends on Judy. I'll ask her when she flies in tomorrow. Judy, it turned out, was Philip's girlfriend. So, naturally, after Nathan and Philip picked her up from the airport the following day, she moved in. She was a tall, pretty girl who did not travel light. So it doesn't take too much to imagine the absolute minefield now encountered during nighttime visits to the bathroom or the sheer chaos of five people trying to shower in a one-bedroom flat the following morning or the idiocy of trying to dry the wet towels afterwards. The next day was a Monday. It was exactly nine days since I had unpacked my few belongings into the grot spot. The cushions were now on the floor as pillows. The drapes were makeshift blankets. The flowers were dead, and no amount of air freshener could eliminate the smell of three heavy pairs of trekking boots beside the wall. John sat patiently in the car as I farewelled my son, his friend, his friend's fiance, and my flat. We didn't say much on the trip home, home to the nice house in the nice street, surrounded by the nice people. I unpacked a few things and lovingly got out my brand new unused laptop. With the inevitable cup of coffee, I took it onto the veranda and sat in my leafy garret to think back on my week of spice and adventure. I had cooked and cleaned, sewn, mended, shared and despaired. But I had not written one word. And now I have 4,476 of them. 
have been listening to The Grot Spot, written and read by Brianda Cross 